what I want to do to start the class is to set up a distinction between the Torah and what we learned about yesterday, prophecy. In other words, that I want us to appreciate that Torah is fundamentally different than prophecy. It's not just another form of prophecy or higher prophecy or whatever. There's something radically different about Torah than the phenomenon of prophecy. So to do that, I want to get back a little bit to prophecy and mention something that I did not speak about yesterday, um, which I didn't, which was intentional. I'm saving it for today so that it sets up this context for the Torah. A prophet can be wrong. Okay. A prophet is capable of being wrong. Not that the prophet misunderstood the prophecy, but that the prophecy itself is wrong. How do we know this? Because they said the shout was coming and it hasn't come yet? No. Because no prophet prophesies when Mashiach is coming in any way that is, and it gives us an explicit date. Um, would have been nice to No, actually, it's a myth. Oh. Not for right now, but it's a myth. There is a source that says that the world exists for 6,000 years and it's a Mashiach will come before then, but we should never conflate the way we've interpreted something with what it actually says. Remember, an interpretation could always be reevaluated. Right. Okay. So you've got to reevaluate the Mashiach. 100%. 100%. It's happened before. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100
that truth may not hold any relevance anymore. And to apply it in that other circumstances would be wrong. Okay? It's actually why we need a special rule that tells us that in order that we can test a prophet, God won't rescind a positive prophecy, so we have a kind of a litmus test. But in essence, a prophecy is conditional upon the moment that it was received. That given the state of affairs then, the prophet is in line with the, in touch with the truth, the state of affairs afterwards may be different, and then the prophecy is no longer relevant, and to apply it would be incorrect. So not that the prophet was mistaken, not the prophecy was false, but the prophecy repeated afterwards may at that point take on an element of falsehood because we're applying it when it is no longer relevant. One of the principles in Judaism, and there is debate about how to exactly define this principle, but setting aside the debate of the details, the core of it is that the Torah is eternal. And what that means is, is that everything I just said about prophecy is not true about Torah. There is, it is not correct to say that the Torah is no longer relevant or the Torah was correct, uh, true under these conditions. The, the key difference between Torah and prophecy that I want to start with is prophecy is true under certain conditions, meaning the conditions in which the world was when the prophet received that prophecy. Torah is eternally true. Now, I mentioned yesterday there were 600,000 Jews who attained prophecy from the time of Moshe to the time of the destruction of the, second, of the first temple, which is about 800-something years. How many of those prophets had their names and prophecies recorded in the Torah? What? Like double the amount of people that came out. Yeah, yeah, no, but how many of them are actually do we have? Recorded? A lot. What? Seven women? And it's, it's, I think it's 44, 48, something like that. Not that many. Why were these prophecies preserved? Because when, because, because when um, these prophecies were looked at by the sages and the prophets, what did they discover? That these prophecies were not merely prophecies. These had elements of Torah. And be, just one sec. Because they had elements of Torah, that means they need to be preserved forever. But if something was a prophecy, okay, so because, you know, 700 years ago someone had a prophecy, that's not relevant to me. So I'm bearing on my life. And so it was true for the person who experienced the prophecy under the condition they experienced the prophecy. And at that point, it may no longer be relevant. It may be relevant for five years, ten years, five minutes. The idea that certain prophetic teachings were put in the Torah is because it's understood that this is something very different. This is an eternal truth. Okay. Yes, someone raised their hand and was patiently waiting. Would there be a situation or someone would have have a prophecy but just not under any true circumstances like they just have a prophecy like I was saying that prophecy would only be true under certain like certain circumstances if that means you know someone could have someone could have a prophecy but it wouldn't apply or it wouldn't apply for many years later yeah a prophecy they have that's about for many years later may not come true okay. now if it's a positive prophecy about a positive occurrence that will necessarily come true as a way of testing prophets God like does that but that's an artificial thing it's not intrinsic to, to what, the way prophecy works. So God will test, like, give them a prophet that like, won't come true just to test how they'll react from that. Yeah, the Torah says that. Okay. And see if we realize that, that there's rules for prophecy, if we follow the rules. And, I mean, one of the great stories of prophecy is that there was the prophet um, 
came to one of the kings, Chizkiyahu um, Melech, and told him, you're going to die because you're a sinner. Um, what sin had he committed? He committed the sin of not having children. Why didn't he have children? Because he had a prophecy that his child, children were going to be wicked. And he says, but I'm not having children because my children be wicked. And the prophet says, well, that's God's business. It's not your business. You have a mitzvah to have children. You're not allowed to decide not to have children. So he turned around, prayed, and, he, and the prophet says, what are you doing? He says, I'm praying. He says, but God has already prophesied, God has already told me you're going to die. He says, well, that's very nice, but I have a tradition. You pray to God, return to God, it's all taken care of. And the king continued to live. He had a child who turned out to be wicked. One of the most wicked kings in Israel. Um, but, so you have the prophet, the prophet, a verified prophet of God, halakha, the kind of guy who comes and says, so saith the Lord, and you have to listen to him. And he says, you're going to die? And the king's like, nah, don't think so. I'm going to do true. I'm going to return to God. And that was true when, when, when God told you it was true, but it's not going to be true anymore. That doesn't work with Torah. Torah is an eternal truth. And so what I want to examine is what is Torah such that it's eternal? Because it's not just communication from God. It's not just God conveying a truth to human beings. Because that, and again, in our tradition, can be true conditionally. It's true at the moment. What is, what's going on with Torah that means that it is always relevant, it is always pertinent, it is absolute? The other thing I want to examine is a corollary of this idea. If the Torah is eternally true, that implies that the Torah has a built-in degree of, you can call it flexibility, you can call it multifacetedness, you can call it complexity, call it whatever you want, but there's something that's not entirely rigid about Torah. Why? Because if it's eternal, that means it applies under all conditions, that means regardless of what's going on, there is a way, there is a manifestation of the Torah that's compatible with that situation. If the Torah would be too rigid of a thing, under different conditions, it wouldn't fit. Okay? In other words, Torah is more like Play-Doh than it is like a brick. What can you do with Play-Doh? You can reshape the Play-Doh to fit. Right? Now, the Play-Doh stays what it is. Right? It doesn't become something else. But a brick, it's rigid. If you, if, if you want to put the brick somewhere where the brick doesn't, there's not a space where the brick is just going to, it's either not going to fit or it's going to break the thing. So again, these are the two ideas I want to focus on. What really is the Torah such that it's eternal? And how do we understand that flexibility or complexity that's necessarily implied by an eternal Torah? Does anyone have any questions about what we're going to spend the rest of the class on? We're just all focused on... There's a lot of things we talk about, Torah, but those are two questions we're going to do. We're good? Okay. Now, there are many different ways to approach the question, what is the Torah? We're going to do it because officially a class in Hasidus, we're going to shed a, a Hasidic light. This is not, what we say, is not unique to Hasidus, but Hasidus really emphasizes this. The Zohar describes the Torah as the link between the Jewish people and God. Um, the idea being, as put in the terminology of the Zohar, that the Jewish people are connected to the Torah and the Torah is connected to God. So by the property of transitive property, if we're connected to Torah, Torah is connected to God, then through the Torah we are connected to God. Or to put it in other words, 
the Torah is the fulfillment of the verse where it says that you are attached to God and therefore you are all living, that, that the true life of a Jew is being attached to God and the Torah is somehow the medium or mechanism or means by which that happens. Now, one of the things that our sages tell us is that God's bond with the Jewish people is absolute. It's unconditional. And I want to just bring out a few different statements that we see that reflect this. One of them, and I'll start with the most negative one, okay? Start with the most negative one, is um, um, a verse which says that God will rule over us by force. I don't remember the exact wording in the Hebrew. Something biyad chazak or biyad, something with a strong hand or... or, or, or I will, I will, I will rule over you. Now, why does that show on an unconditional connection? Because it doesn't matter what we do. That's right. God has decided we're his people, whether we like it or not. And even if we don't like it, does he take that into consideration? No. no. Right. Now, that's... That's not a pleasant way of looking at it, but I'm starting there because I think we want to under, we really examine the notion of something being unconditional. We really need to think about what it means in full. So if a person decides to reject God, God will not reject them. If a person decides to run away from God, God will in some measure pursue them. If a person tries to escape God, God will get ahead of them and catch them. And do they necessarily like that? No. Now, there's another statement of our, of, of our sages, a statement of a sage which says that God says, um, regardless of how they behave, they're my children. Um, and the analogy of a child is that um, regard, a child is not something you can decide is no longer your child. You can decide not to talk to them, you can decide not to like them, but you can't decide they're not your child anymore. So that kind of a bond of the parent and child, which we see reflected throughout the written Torah, that again shows on unconditionality. There's something where the sages say, God says, to exchange the Jewish people for another people, I am unable, any yachol. So if you ever want to source in Jewish tradition what God can't do, what he's incapable of doing, is exchanging the Jewish people with someone else. Doesn't make sense. Like, it doesn't he decided make, well, to wait, not wait, be able. Wait, wait, wait. It doesn't make sense? Or you don't understand? I don't. Sorry. That's okay. We're allowed not to understand. Um, Is this a class about the fact that God can't do certain things? No. No. No, So we have a topic for another class sometime, right? Okay. That's right. Um, Then you have the first word in the Torah. The first word in the Torah is very awkward. Um, Everyone knows the first word in the Torah? Voracious. How do you translate the word voracious? From the beginning. No, not from the beginning. In. From in voracious? In. To, no one knows how to. From the beginning. Nope. From the beginning. Nope. The beginning. In the beginning of. What did I say? Yeah. What did you say? In the beginning of. I missed of. So I will literally translate the first verse of the Torah. Literally. You've never seen this in English because it's really awkward. Um, but it reads as follows. In the beginning of, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, that's great. I'm going to say again. In the beginning, beginning of, of what? God created the heavens and the earth. There's like a missing clause there. Literally into English. 
It's a problem in Hebrew, by the way, also. In Hebrew, the first verse of the Torah also makes no sense. All the commentators are like, um, there's a grammatical problem here. If you have in the beginning of, you need to of what? So in English, when you read that's. It just added like flowers, extra flowers. No, so all of, so so this. So there's different ways to study the text. Okay, one of the ways of studying the text. Okay, and the idea being here is that God put all of His infinite wisdom in the text. So there's more than one way to approach it, right? If one of the ways of studying the text is trying to get what is the most straightforward meaning in context. This is usually called pshat, the simple meaning. Well, it's not always so simple, but that's not the only way to read the text. So what you have to do if you want to read that thing straightforwardly is you kind of have to fudge the grammar. There's no way around it. It, it doesn't make sense grammatically. Either because it says in the beginning of God created the heavens and the earth. But, it, but it's right there, God created. So you understand already that it's the world, no? So, what's that? so there's two common approaches. One way is to mess around with the verb created and turn it into a noun and say... The verse should be read, in the beginning of God's creation of the heavens and the earth. And that would make it make sense. But just like in English, I had to change the wording slightly to make it smooth, flow smoothly. That's one of doing. The other way of doing it is you can, you can change the in the beginning of and drop the of part. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the way, those two sentences mean two very different things. This is something the commentators dispute. But what the commentators all acknowledge is that God clearly has more intention in this verse that's why it's written in this very weird way. And the first word, bereshis, can be read, the, the Hebrew letter bays can be understood as two. And the word racious can be understood as a noun, meaning the fir- a first thing, anything which is a first. And so it can be read as that God, there were two things that were first, and then God created the world. There are two things, therefore, that preceded the world. There are two things, what? No. Two things that preceded the world, um, and then that would be understood as the two things for which God created the world, right? The two things that precede something, or the thing that precedes something else is very often the motivation behind the thing. Um, it's my desire for milk and my coffee that gets me to go to the store to buy milk. Okay. So what are these two things? The tradition tells us, that Rashi and many other commentators bring this, this tradition, it's a very ancient tradition, that these two things that are the first things are the Jewish people and the Torah. Now, if the Jewish people in the Torah precede the creation of the world, whatever that means, that means that God's connection to them is not conditional upon what happens in the world. The world is created on the basis that God cares about these two things, the Jewish people in the Torah. And moreover, the sages discuss um, in different places that between the two, which one is the primary thing, the Jewish people or the Torah? The Jewish people. It's the Jewish people. In other words, God has this connection with Jewish people, which precedes the act of creation. And, as I said, the the first thing, that the Torah is the mode, the mechanism by how we connect to God. So if God's connection to the Jewish people is absolute, it precedes creation. It's something that is an unconditional regardless of our behavior. It's something he will pursue us no matter what. Then that means the Torah's relevance becomes absolute because the Torah is the way that relationship, that connection is manifest or achieved. So if God's, in other words, if we were to have the view that God creates the world, then God finds some weird people in the Middle East and says, okay, I decided 
you're my favorite band of nomads. Of all the nomads, I like you the best. <laughs> and now I'm going to give you some rules. Then you can ask, well, why these nomads as opposed to those nomads? And why these rules as opposed to those rules? And even if that's true now, why, can't, why does it have to be true forever? But if, on the other hand, we were to say that God has some kind of special connection to the Jewish people that precedes whether or not he creates a world, and he understands that connection is happening through a, this entity called the Torah, which we'll come back to what it is, and only then on that basis does he create a world where that can happen, then regardless of what happens in the world, the connection with the Jewish people is going to remain, and the relevance of the Torah will remain. So Torah is not prophecy. Torah, prophecy is a phenomenon that can only exist once creation occurs. Once there's God and there are human beings, now how do God and human beings communicate? Torah is something else. Torah, so to speak, in the mind of God, what is the mode, what is the manner in which the Jewish people are supposed to be connected to him? And then he creates a world in which there can be actual Jewish people and actually be connected to him. And so as long as God is God, he cares about what he cares about, the Jewish peoples therefore have this importance to him, and therefore the Torah therefore has relevance. So, in fact, the difference between Torah and prophecy is as great as the difference between God and a rock. I'll explain to you what I mean. The rock only exists, why? Because God creates it. If, there's no, if God doesn't create it, the rock has no existence. Because the rock is something else that God brings into being. What is prophecy? We said yesterday prophecy is what? Is that people and God can have some sort of communication. Well, does it make sense to speak about God communicating to people who don't exist? Right? The phenomenon of God communicating to human beings is an aspect of the reality of human beings. Now, if God doesn't create any human beings, there's no prophecy. But if God doesn't create anything, what do our sages say is the idea of the Jewish people and their connection to God still significant to God? Yes. And is the Torah the way, the Torah, if the Torah is the way that is played out, therefore have reality to it? Yes. If you want to think of it, it's, it exists in the mind of God rather than being a creation of God. That's a way to think about it. And given that, um, in Judaism, that's one of the reasons why we use the rules of the Torah to determine who and who is not a valid prophet. Because prophecy is such a as significant as that is, and as we, uh, we spoke about yesterday, compared to Torah, it almost becomes inconsequential. Because that, what Torah means is that there is a way every single Jew is supposed to be connected to God, that that precedes the very creation of the world, that precedes the way um, reality unfolds. Now, what that should mean to all of us very quickly is that the to- nobody actually knows what the Torah is. What we know are particular manifestations of the Torah. And what I want to do is talk about that idea that there's different manifestations of the Torah versus what the Torah is. And that'll transition us between the first question, which is, what is the Torah, to the second question, how it has complexity and manifests in different ways. I have just a quick yeah. question. Um, can non-Jews receive prophecy? Yes, absolutely. Um, so if the Torah was, precedes creation... And I think I'm a little confused on, on how Jewish people can perceive creation. Okay, so... Is it like Jewish souls? So that's a, that is... So, so the sages do not discuss that. Okay. They just don't discuss it. In the Kabbalah, it is discussed, but very briefly and tersely. 
That is one of the major topics of Hasidus. So, like, like many areas of Torah study where you have, so for instance, if you read, if you read, the, if you read the Chumash scripture, the, the five books of Moses, you're not going to find any great elaboration on how to keep Shabbos. If you study the Mishnah, you have 24 chapters on how to keep Shabbos. Study the Talmud, you have a lot more. If you start looking in contemporary books about the, all the, right, it becomes... But what you'll notice is that those books, contemporary books, are dedicated to that one sole topic, whereas the Chumash, the, 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 the written Torah, just contains everything. So you have the same issue here, right? There's all sorts of biblical things that allude to this idea. There's, there's, there's sayings of the sages which say these ideas explicitly, but there's no real elaboration. And again, the Kabbalists, when they do elaborate on the topic, it's almost not as the main subject, but it parenthetically shows up as relating to something else they want to elaborate on. Whereas Hasidus, as an as a area of Torah, of Torah thought, focuses that on as a main topic. And so it becomes a very involved discussion. Is it the soul? If it's the soul, which part of the soul? All the soul. What about the body? Isn't the body significant? I mean, Judaism is very much about doing physical mitzvahs. How do we understand that? I'm not going to answer all those questions, but it is a huge discussion. Clearly, I think it's clear to all of us that um, taking that in a very silly way of thinking that there's like physical Jews wandering around reality before God creates the world is obviously not what it means. Right? I mean, just because, just because we don't know what something is doesn't mean we have to assume idiotic things. Bad way of learning. I have a follow-up question which might not be answerable without getting into that rabbit hole, but um, it, my understanding of what you're saying with like prophecy is it's communication between Hashem and human beings, mm-hmm. and so that's why it depends on the existence of like human creation. beings, right? That's also why it's conditional. However, wouldn't it be possible if before creation there were Jewish people and Hashem? for there to be communication? Or is it specifically communicating with the body? It's communi- prophecy is communicating with living human beings. Okay. Yeah, that's so what it's we not say. about like communicating from the soul. Like it's no, specifically no, no, no. communicating with creation. Yeah. Okay, that Okay. All right, so now one important thing that we need to understand going forward, and this is a basic principle in Judaism about the Torah, and something that Hasidus, again, emphasizes all of the time. Not literally all. Rhetorically, all the time. God only gave the Torah once. There's no updates. There's no Torah 2.0. There's no Torah 1.00037. There's only the one time God gave the Torah. That's it. Right. So the slumming of the thingies, the blueprints were just like a, a reprint? Well, so... Now, the question is, well, what did God give only once? Because, I mean, it would be kind of weird if Moses comes down and says, okay, I have this book. It says here, you guys are going to make a golden calf. And then, you're, and then I'm going to go up the mountain, break the tablets. And then Korach is going to rebel. Oh, by the way, Korach, you might not want to do that. It Was says it here, like, that and it, that's obviously <laughs> silly, right? Can we all agree that that... Moshe coming down on Mount Sinai with another 40 years worth of history already written out is a little bit silly. He wrote it so it was only along, the along the way. Either he wrote it along the way or wrote it at the end of his life. The Talmud is a debate about that, but he clearly did not come down on Mount Sinai with the five books. It would also be really weird like if he had a, like, a Megillah the Scroll of Esther telling us that, oh, you know. As, like, Could you clarify when you say once, you mean like... I will tell you like exactly not in when. Sections. I no. He, God gave the Torah once. I will tell you exactly when he did it. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
He gave it Shabbos morning, dawn. Right? Shabbos morning what? Shabbos morning at dawn. You want to know? Shabbos morning at dawn. Where is this written? The Talmud. Part of it's in the Chumash and part of it's in the Talmud. Based on analyzing the verses. Shabbos morning, dawn. Um, and it would be seven weeks and two days after they left Egypt. They left Egypt on a Thursday. Seven weeks later was a Thursday. And then that Shabbos morning at dawn. Maybe it's sunrise. I could be mistaken it was sunrise. Dawn or sunrise? I don't remember. When you mean gave it, it means Moshe received it. That's right. God gave it, Moshe received it, and that was it. No, we're not sure about that. We're not sure if it was the 6th of Sivan or the 7th because the Jewish calendar months are flexible. So we know how many days it was after Mount Sinai. We know... We know... Yeah, but we don't know exact date of the year. We, we, the, we follow the tradition that it was the 6th, which is why that's when we say the prayers for that book. Yeah. Okay, now... It coincides when we celebrate Shavuos. Yes. Yes. Is that something we'll know when Mashiach comes? I don't know. I, I don't know. We have no tradition that God is going to tell us like all the unknown facts of history when Mashiach comes. He might, that'd be nice, but he might not. That would be really great. The, that, I'm guessing you're gonna get here, but that creates a problem with how the, the patriarchs and matriarchs followed the Torah. Because they knew Torah, they studied Torah. That's true. That's true. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not planning on getting to that. If I have time later, that can't get to everything. Okay. Okay. Um, so, I want to use an analogy because an analogy is a very helpful thing. Um, it, it, it's concrete. It's something we're familiar with, hopefully. There is something called a human being. Not human beings, a human being. So you are a human being. I'm a human being. Good. Um, a human being is a biological organism. It's more than that, but we're just going to focus on a biological organism. Okay? Now, what I'm asking you is a question which is, which is very important that we answer this correctly. Um, and I do not mean to get into anything controversial such as abortion. It's not relevant to this, okay? So I'm, I'm very clear. Don't misunderstand the question. When does the biological organism of a human being begin? I'm not asking you when a person becomes a person and divorce. At conception. At conception, what you now have is the beginning of a new organism. Now, Questions about, like, is that a person, not a person? Like, that's a separate discussion, right? How many times does that human organism have to be conceived? Once. Once. What? Like the Torah. Once. That's it, right? There's no reconception, right? It's very awkward if, like, you hit 45 and you have to be reconceived by your parents or something. Okay? Don't want to go there, Right. So... But the thing is, if you were to look at, a, if look at this organism, again, I'm talking purely biologically right now, okay? If we were to look at a human, that human organism, the moment after conception, and a few days later, 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 would it, keep, would it look the same? It's a good no. It would not it look like my analogy. It's the Kabbalist analogy. Oh, wow. It would not look the same, right? Oh, wow. it would, what? Sorry. So it would look very different, yeah? By the way, there is an interesting radical shift that occurs in that biological organism after conception. Does anyone know what that is? 
There's a lot, but there's one like really pretty major one. Birth. Birth. Now, birth is a really radical change, right? On the other hand, does the, does the organism more or less look the same right before birth or right after birth? But does it function in the same way? No. For instance, right before you're born, you don't breathe. After you're born, you better breathe. Back in the day when people didn't trust God, they hit babies. You know that? They hit themselves. Of course. Wait, whoa, a newborn baby? Uh-huh. Take them out? Yeah. Because wow. men, men really know a lot about babies, right? So the baby comes out, the male doctor's like, smack the baby. Ah, cries. Now it's breathing. It's actually, they still do it. Though. I got smacked. I, yeah, but, they, but, they, but like you don't, ha- you don't actually have to do that in most cases. The baby no, will start breathing on its own. I wasn't breathing. I wasn't breathing. Okay, that, yeah, yeah, yeah it happens, it happens. But like, Baruch Hashem, I have seven children and to my knowledge, none of them had to be smack coming out. No, but it's a, it's a thing that the, they used to think they were smacking the baby. It's no. an Israeli thing. It could be. Right? You know, going to the bathroom, babies start doing that. Um, but eating, eating right? There's a lot of different things, right? Having sense perception, like there's no stimuli and all of a sudden you start perceiving the world. Think of the overload of that. It's very radically different. But on some hand, it's, it's very much the same thing. So the Kabbalists compare the coming of Mashiach to a birth, which we'll get to in a different class. But what's the giving of the Torah? A conception. Conception. Okay. So now I don't want to get into that, that whole issue about... the before birth and after birth. We'll come back to that analogy again in a subsequent class. But let's, let's think about it. If you were to see that, that organism at different stages, and even once they're born, right? I've, I've had kids. Newborns are nothing like teenagers. Physically, they're just different. In fact, um, my oldest son is 13. And um, every Friday night, I've, I bless the children. And so for the past year, it's been going like this. Like week to week. Like I can feel it. Like... The angle of my arms is different because he's at that age where the growing is happening quite rapidly. Okay? Are you okay? I'm not a car. You can still bless this before. Like this? Before your head. It's not a Chabad custom, no, but it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, many communities have it. It's my family custom, so continue to do it. Um, so, and, and there's all sorts of things. I mean, right? There's old age, there's hitting puberty, right? There's all these changes that occur in this organism, and yet at no point do you need does, does that reconception, right? It's just once. Because everything is really there, but it unfolds and manifests at different stages based on what is appropriate for the life cycle of the human organism, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So, when God gave the Torah, He gave something which is what it is for us to be bound up with God. I don't know what that is. You know why I don't know what that is? Think about why I don't know what that is. If the Torah is what it is to be bound up with God, why don't I know what it is? Because you don't know God. I don't know what it is to be bound up by God. Now, why don't I know what it means to be bound up with God? Because I don't know God. Which is what we've been discussing in the first class. But what... But, being bound up with God means something specific in my life and that I can know. So I can know that being bound up with God means I have to put on tefillin every morning. Or being bound up with God means that I have like Shabbos candles Friday afternoon, right? I can know what it, how it manifests without really knowing what it is. If I were to ask you to draw a picture or describe a human organism, if you picked any moment whether it's the zygote, a fetus, an infant, a toddler, an adult, 
You'd be wrong. That's not, that is not a description of the human organism. That's a description of the human organism at a particular stage. That's what it looks like at this point. But to describe the human organism, you'd have to have an understanding of what that is. What is it that ties all of that together? And that's very profound and abstract. Okay? So just one second, just to give you an example, okay? Um, did anyone go see the goat sacrifice this morning? I'm sorry? The goat sacrifice. Yeah, I mean, This morning, at dawn? Well, sunrise, actually. Chakras, you know? Of course. The sunrise sacrifice down the block? No? Unfortunately, our teacher, what we have before he told us that if we start slaughtering animals, the Arabs will start slaughtering us. So, what? That's what Khalid said. Khalid Okay. You didn't. One second, one second, one second. Okay. I want to get this straight. You are in the holy city of God, and you do not go to see the morning. Goat sacrifice? Because there is no goat sacrifice. No, no, there's no goat sacrifice. One second, one second, one second, one second. Now, it sounds kind of funny, right? Like, like, like it's a weird conversation. But now, let's, let's go back and let's pretend we're at the year, I don't know, 10. And you've been, and you just came to Yerushalayim. And someone asked you, like, you got to your slide two days ago. So, again, the first day you rested, whatever. And they said, so did you see the goat sacrifice this morning? Like, no. And they're like, what, you're still impure? Like, no. I just didn't, couldn't be bothered. Like, what? You didn't go? You didn't even want? Like, it's your first time here. Why did you go see the goat sacrifice? So, did their Judaism look exactly like our Judaism? No. No. Because our Judaism is how the Torah manifests in a state called exile. And their Judaism is how Judaism manifests in a state called having a temple. Is it two different Judaisms? No. No, but it looks different because it's manifested. So the Torah is eternal. Now, what, how are the sacrifices relevant in exile? Can someone tell me? We don't go slaughtering goats. In exile. Because if the Torah is eternal, the, right? so we have the act of prayer. We also have the idea of studying the sacrifices. In other words, the particular manifestation of the Torah alters and changes based on what stage we're in, but everything manifests in some way, shape, or form because it's part of this entity called the Torah. Now, that means, and this is very important, if I study all the Torah that I possibly can, and I practice all the Torah that I possibly can. Do I really know what the Torah is? No. We decided that no, because we don't know Hashem. Because we don't know Hashem, right. Does that, and, but does that, now, that, that should, I want to give you just another physical analogy. No matter what you're looking at, there's always a problem, which is that you're looking at it from somewhere. And so all you see is? Your limited perspective. That's right. Does that mean, does that mean that you could, does that mean it's, it's up to you? No, it's not up to you. Like if I, if I look at, you know, this cup and I look at this cup as, you know, a giraffe, I'm clearly mistaken. It's not a giraffe, right? But um, I can see into the cup. You can't see into the cup, right? Right? So I can see how much coffee is left, and you can't. Okay, fine. 
Right? The fact that you can't see it doesn't mean that my seeing it is invalid. And therefore, a greater knowledge of, the t- of this cup would require us to do what? Yeah, make sense? So, how do we get the Torah in a practical way is that we have to do what? Right. We have to communicate with other Jews. That already studied it. Other Jews when? In the previous years. There's two things. The Jews back then, but also the Jews of right now. And this is why, for instance, I'll use an example. There's there's an interesting book. The most interesting book, and probably the most important book in the entire Torah, is anyone know what's the most interesting and important book? And no, it's not the Tanya, despite the fact that I like the Tanya. You hate this book? No. I I like Tanya, but it's not not the most important or interesting book. The Gemara. The Gemara, the Talmud. Why is that the most interesting book? Because it's a lot of people sitting together. Okay, but here's the thing. The Talmud, the, people say, there's a lot of people sitting together having discussions. Sometimes uh, people don't have a sense of the scope of the Talmud. So let me just give you some facts. Um, 500 years ago, 500 years ago was 1520, yes? 1522. Okay. How long? That was a long time ago. Does anyone know what's happening around then? How long? Ago? Europeans had just discovered the Americas, right? Fourteen ninety-two, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? Okay, so you know the whole like America, uh, Europeans going to the Americas is just getting started. Okay, that's how long ago five hundred years ago. Okay, good. The Talmud, by a conservative estimate. Okay, in other words, if we're going to talk about the people that are, the people that are active participants for the most part, not people that show up once in a while. The earliest sages who are having a conversation with Talmud to the latest sages having a conversation with Talmud is a period of 500 years. Now, when you read the Talmud, this is very interesting. You read about Hillel and Rabbi Akiva. I know, I'm going to pick people from different eras. Hillel and Rabbi Akiva and Rav and Rav Papa and, and Marbar Ravashi, without any, almost any sensitivity to the fact that between Hillel and Marbar Ravashi, which is the name of a sage, is 500 years. And you're reading the same book as if they were all sitting in one room having discussions with each other. And that's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? What? Right, but they, and now here's the thing, is that it's actually a little bit misleading because how do we study the Talmud? Because really well, Yeah, but... Chavrutas? No, no, no. Let me, that was a rhetorical question. The way we study the Talmud is like this. The Talmud was 1,500 years ago. The Talmud was compiled in the year 500, approximately, give or take. But when we sit and study Talmud, it's not like, oh, this Talmud was 500 years ago because there's more people who are part of the conversation. They're just on the side of the page. And then there's more people on the side of the page in the back of the book and the associating book until you get to the person who you're in front of, who learned from the person you're in front of who is in conversation. And it turns out that this conversation in a certain sense has never really ended. Now, can you jump in the middle of a conversation without really knowing what they're talking about? So if you wanna jump in the conversation, you've got a lot of catch up to do, right? But that's really what it is because if I really want to know what this connection to Hashem is, right? 
I need to hear everybody else who's experienced some of its manifestation, how it manifested there. And then that gives me some of a sense. And now I maybe have some sense going forward of how it manifests in my life. So the idea that the Torah is eternal, right, is because the Torah is not, the, 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 the Torah is not like a list of things. In fact, one of the things that actually was very, very controversial is making lists in Torah. Okay? And I'm going to demonstrate this with an interesting observation. The Chumash, the five books of Moshe, they have all the mitzvahs, yes? How many mitzvahs are there? 613. Are you sure? No. Good. That's what they tell us. If you open up the Chumash and you just can start counting, every single time God tells, and let's be clear, God tells the Jewish people to do something or implies that he's commanded the Jewish people to do something, right? Sometimes you can say something and it's clear that, the, that something was commanded from what you say next, right? Like if I say like, why ha- if I say, why haven't you done X? The implication is you were supposed to have done X, right? Okay. Fine. So if you count all of those up, how many do you get? No. More. Way more than six. Because every time Hashem tells Avram to do something. No. There's some repetitions, but there's a lot of, there's a lot more. I haven't gone through the Chumash. I, I spoke to someone who has. He says, he told me that depending on how you want to count it, you could easily get to 2,000. What? Because every time Hashem says. Every time you, every time you go through, every time God tells, tells Moshe or the Jewish people to do something. Is there a difference between... Wait, wait, let me... Wait, wait, wait. This is just a fact about the Chumash. This is a fact about the written Torah. Now. Wait, could you finish what you just said every time up? If you count every time Hashem tells Moshe or the Jewish people to do something or not to do something, you get way more than 613. What do you say the guy said it could be up to Someone told me that he went through and he said, depending on how you want to count, you get it into the 2000s. I didn't check. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I did not check. Like this is someone who I know who you know was somewhat reliable. A prophet? No. It's like, it, when he said it, it sounds plausible to me, but I didn't check. No, it's not the same guy. He's not plausible. Well, it's like each carbon and each time, like right. You, it's a, like, like, like every but, time a shovel. Okay, now wait, 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 wait. What are you considering? Oh, what's it? So here's the thing. The Torah was given at Mount Sinai 3,300 something years ago. Okay. Then there was a rabbi. If I remember correctly, his name was Rabbi Simlai. And he lived, let's say, approximately 1,700 years ago. So that's a long time after the Torah was given, yes? He's in the Talmud. And he says a whole, it's part of a whole interesting um, class he gave. He gave a whole class on how many mitzvahs there are. At the beginning of the class, he says, God gave us 613 mitzvahs at Sinai. How do we know? It says in the Gemara. He's the guy in the Gemara. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's the thing. Remember, the Gemara is people manifesting the Torah, right? Living the Torah, trying to understand the Torah, right? So you can't say... It's like, Rabbi Sublai didn't get it from the Gemara. He's the Gemara. So he says, he says the word Torah, the word Torah has a numerical value of 611. 
611. The word Torah is 611. Every Hebrew word, every Hebrew letter has a numerical value. So the Torah is 611. And the verse says, Torah tziva lanu Moshe. The Torah that Moshe commanded us. That means how many commandments did we get from Moshe? 611. Because the word Torah is 611. And we have a verse that says, when God spoke once, we heard two. There's a verse that says, God spoke once and we heard two. And that, we have a tradition, means that when God spoke to the Jewish people, we heard two commandments from that. So now if you have two commandments directly from God and 611 together with, that came via Moshe, how many is that in total? 613. And then he goes on to make this very interesting point about prophets and how the prophets categorize mitzvahs and whatever. Is there anywhere in the Talmud a list of the 613 mitzvahs? No. No. Now, sometimes the sages will say, these are two separate mitzvahs. They'll say that. Or they'll say this is the same mitzvah, but there's no list. I love how this guy decided. But he didn't decide. But he really did, because why did no one say this before 17,000 years ago? or Oh, that's a very good question. But I want you to, I want you to change the order. You first, you, first, you first gave an answer, and then asked the question. Like a real Jew. So the question is, why did he say this, okay? So I'm, gonna, I'm, going, to, I'm going to point something out, which is very, very important. There's a concept called custom, minhag. There is an argument that is made that a true custom is never written down and never spoken about. Isn't there like a group of people that live in Israel that are Jewish and have that whole like, forgot what they're called, like their religion, that's how it works, but they don't talk about it? Um, that's a different idea. That's, they don't talk about the theology of the religion. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about it much more simple. For instance, um, I don't think I have ever once, once, told my children that the custom is that we cover the challah while we make kiddush. I don't think I've ever once told my children that. They never asked this modeling? Because why would I have to tell them? Every Shabbos, what happens? You just do it out. Whoever sets the table, you know, I set it. And like, I also never told them that it's when you set a table, it's important to make sure um, that there's enough place settings for everybody. Why? Right. It's com- there's some things that you learn from osmosis. osmosis, from doing and seeing and observing. What a, cus- a real custom means the way we do something. If it's really, really the way we do something, then does anyone need to go and tell you? No. No. And by the way, this is not just true about things we do. It's also true about ways we think about things. Many things aren't necessarily explicitly said. And so sometimes rabbis say things because they start to realize that people are not appreciating it anymore. How many times does a rabbi get up in the synagogue and say, God told us to keep Shabbos? What kind of synagogue would a rabbi have to get up and say, God told us to keep Shabbos? People, not people maybe aren't keeping it so well, right? Or people, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, like the fact that something is said... Brought up when it's... Right. So the seven times, times, 613. That was only brought up because people were... Well, actually, I said he brings it up as a parenthetical point. It's actually he's bringing it up as, a, as, a, the, as the first line in a speech, actually, where he's trying to make a different point entirely. So it, it's almost like... Right. It may be that... Way, in other words, like this. It may be that 
it may be that this is a well-known thing and nobody ever mentioned it because it's it didn't even mention it. By the way. Right, but he said, but kind of starting off like, since we all know that we cover the, the, cover the challah when we make Kiddush, and then he moves on to make a point about that, and that, that implies something else, implies something else. The thing is, the fact that something is first said, and by the way, we don't know if this is the first time it was said, we just know that this is the first time someone bothered to Write it down. But don't we learn from literally leaving Egypt and then we saw Hashem's miracles and we complained again and forgot about Hashem and then we had to be reminded? Like, isn't that a fact that we should be writing it right away? No. Why? Well, are there atheists nowadays? Yeah. yeah. Is the Torah written down? Yeah. yeah. Does it solve the problem to write it down? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, the, so, now the thing is, he makes that, and again, he doesn't make that. So you have the, you have we, you have mitzvahs. They're clearly mitzvahs in the chumash. There's discussions. The Talmud are these two things the same mitzvah for two different mitzvahs. That's discussed about certain particular issues. One rabbi mentions parenthetically there's 613, which we don't know is that we just don't know. And, you know, is that was that a universally held of opinion? Is that go all the way back to Moshe? Is that his own take on it? Whatever. But this idea clearly becomes understood as as being reflective of the way we're supposed to view the Torah. Wait, 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 we're not done yet. It's only when we get to the Middle Ages, people start thinking, hmm, maybe we should make a list of the mitzvahs. And they start opening the homers like, uh-oh, too many mitzvahs. So how are we going to, right? And they start making lists. Well, no, because people, because they thought that, well, if, if, if there's this idea that there, there's a certain amount, then maybe there's some kind of significance in understanding how they should be categorized. And what they start to do is this whole new area of examining the Torah develops, which is trying to understand what makes something a distinct mitzvah. And that becomes like a whole new branch of, of looking at the Torah. It's like at some point, you know, you start developing language skills, right? You didn't have language skills when you were six months, but by the time you're four, you do, right? At some point, that manifests. At some point... Part of the Jewish people living their connection to Hashem is understanding what makes a mitzvah conceptually a distinct thing from another mitzvah. And we know that that was just not a thing that they were doing in the Talmud times, right? They, they made reference to it. They brought it up parenthetically for other issues, but it wasn't an issue in its own right. And all of a sudden it becomes an issue in its own right. And then guess what happened? There's a few hundred years where they discuss this kind of thing. We have these lists of mitzvahs. The Rambam makes a list. Other people make lists. And then what happens? It's like, okay, I think we finished that. Like, that's been, that's been developed, and they move on to the... And now there's that... In other words... And, and then there's a question, like, okay, like, how, is that really... Where is the right place of that? How, how significant is it? are these lists? How central should we view them? But... And I'm not answering this question. My point is that when you start realizing that the, there is this fundamental, unknowable essence of what it is to be connected to God that is manifest through the verses, through the practice of the mitzvahs, through the discussions, the dialogues, and, and we're, we're faithfully following that, that's the Torah, and that develops and manifests. There's no good giving of the Torah, there's no updating the Torah, but there's constantly discovering elements of the Torah that previously were not sufficiently manifest. And that wasn't necessarily a problem, right? It would be very, very bad. Imagine you had a two-year-old, right? I have a two-year-old. Imagine you have a two-year-old who developed the ability to be awake like an adult. Do you think of the disaster? You know what two-year-old is like? They're wonderful. They're cute. And they need to go to bed. You know why they need to go to bed? Because parents need to be adults. And if two-year-olds could stay up as long as adults can and wake up at the same time day after day, adults would go crazy. 
or something like that. So God made it that they go to sleep and you get four or five hours at night before you have to go to sleep where you can function. It's great. So now, and going taking this analogy one step further, the body of a person, can it develop in such ways which are harmful to the organism? Now, does the body have ways of dealing with that? Yeah. Yeah. So, for instance, um, in a normal, healthy person, if, some, if the body starts not functioning properly in some particular way, there are other parts of the body, right? The immune system will shut things down and kill things and it works. If that doesn't happen, the person can get very sick, right? Also, can it, uh, the, the human organism be infected by other things? Yeah. Yeah. Can it be starved of the resources it needs and start to wither and die? Yes. So what does that tell us about the Torah then? If we're going to take this analogy all the way through. Can the Torah be misdeveloped in certain ways? Sure. So does the Torah have to have some sort of mechanism to like defend that? Uh-huh. So have you heard of Christianity? Yes. Where did Christianity come from? Us, they The Torah. So without getting into all the details, what happened? It's a misdevelopment of Torah. And then what did the Torah do? Excised it. Excised it. Kicked it out. Okay. Um, what happens if the Jewish people don't approach the Torah with the right things that they need? Such as, for instance, if you approach Torah without the proper perspective, the proper guidance, then what can happen? Right. So there's the idea that the Torah is, because the Torah is, in other words, the Torah is living. That's the idea. It's not that the Torah is constantly updated because it's constantly doing, changing however you want. It's the same Torah, but a living thing grows. A living thing manifests different properties. And the Torah lives through the Jewish people. The Torah is the way the Jewish people are connected to Hashem. And so when Hashem conceives of what a Jew is, what does he conceive of an individual Jew and the collective Jew and the Jewish people overall of history is people who are, who are embodying a certain way of living in deed, in thought, in feeling. And that way somehow is, it touches on something very significant to Hashem and that's why he creates the world and that's what's important to him. And so when a Jew lives in the Torah and studies the Torah, they're part of that. And if God forbid not, they're not. But the totality of the Torah is never found by that one little manifestation the person has. And there's, for we see that there's a sense that a part of the true study of Torah is this kind of interesting blend. True study of Torah, the true practice of Torah is this blend of extreme confidence and extreme humility. When I put on tefillin, I'm supposed to be extremely confident that this is connecting me to God. Now, when I wrap my tefillin, right, I wrap it like this. Okay? I put the box on, and I wrap like this. Straps like that, okay? Going out. I have neighbors, when they put on their tefillin, how do they wrap it? They go like this, and they wrap it in. So I'm absolutely confident that when I'm doing this, what am I doing? Right. I'm doing it right. And what is he supposed to be absolutely convinced about? That when he does it like this? Right. How am I supposed to view what he's doing? That's that's right. wrong. That it's wrong or that it's right? It's right for, for you. That's both right. They're both right. Right? 
It would be really weird if my kidney started functioning like my liver, right? That would not be a good thing, right? Or if my eyeballs, right? Eyeballs are great. Imagine if my, eye, right, if, my, if, my, if my eyeballs started turning into teeth. That would be bad, right? Does anyone understand that that would be bad biologically? Sure. Oh, okay. So could it be that the way the Torah is manifest in this particular person or this particular community will have variations the way the Torah is supposed to manifest in that particular version, that particular community? Different organs of the body? Different organs. So one body, different parts. That's right. How do you know something's wrong? What? How do you know something's wrong? Oh. Well, there are two ways to know that something's wrong with the body. If we take this analogy for to this conclusion, right? There are two ways to know something's wrong with the body. What are, well, there's three ways. One is the person's dead. But we want to avoid that. So, right? <laughs> what are the other two ways to know something's wrong with the body? You feel bad. What? You feel bad. You, f- you feel bad. That was subjectively. Like, right? You, you, you are having a sensation that you, of, of, of pain that is telling you something is wrong. Now, maybe there's nothing we can do about it. Right? For instance, people, as they get older, they experience pain. That pain is because the body isn't working properly, but there's nothing we currently know how to do about that, right? When a person gets old, older, their knees hurt. I'm like, uh, no, you, that's because the knees are breaking and, and the body doesn't have the ability to repair them properly. And I mean, we could do surgery or we could give the person pills, but, but that, right? So that's one way. What's the other way? Body rejects it. Not able to do what it's... Now you as a person, how are you, right? So, so I won't put that together. One way is that, you're, is that you are experiencing pain. You're not able to do things you're supposed to do. Like you can, in other words, these are things you get from your direct experience. If all of a sudden I can't walk, clearly something is wrong. If all of a sudden it hurts every time I do this, something is wrong, right? If I'm having headaches that don't go away, something is wrong, right? What's the other way to know something is wrong? A doctor tells you. And you don't know. How does the doctor know? He checks it. Ah, the da- the doc right, the doctor the doctor so I wanna I wanna explain the, why I'm grouping that at putting that as a separate group. The doctor has an understanding of human anatomy and the problems it can face and what are markers of those problems. So for instance, the doctor understands how the human body works to some degree, understands therefore that if what could go understands what could go wrong, understands that if certain things go wrong that there'll be more or less of this thing in your blood, right? Or your temperature will be like this, right? But notice how it's very different than the way you know something is wrong. You know something's wrong because something hurts that shouldn't hurt. You can't do something you should be able to do, right? It's a direct kind of experience. And by the way, one knowledge is not necessarily better than the other. There, you know, I mean, there's ways in which you know something is wrong that's better than the doctor. There's certain situations with a doctor. Like for instance, this is reflected in halacha. In Jewish law, if your life is in danger, you're not allowed to fast. So let's say Yom Kippur, if, it's a, if there's a concern that a person could die from fasting, they're, they're required to eat. So what if the doctor says that, if the doctor says you don't need to fast, or sorry, the doctor says you need to, fa- you, you don't, you need to fast, your life is perfectly fine, there's no, there's no threat to your life, you can go through the fast of Yom Kippur. And you say, I know, I feel that I am on the verge of collapse, and if I fast, I'm going to fall ill and possibly die. What's the halacha? You don't have to fast. You don't have to fast. If you really, really feel that way, why? Because 
we say that a person senses their own inner fatigue and weakness is something the doctor doesn't really access to, and if you really feel that way, then that, that takes precedence. On the other hand, if the doctor says... Um, Why do pregnant women still have to fast? Like, on your kid, Because their life is not in danger by fasting, generally. Uh, it depends what. I, I remember one of my wife was pregnant once, and she had a particular complication. And I called the rabbi and said, does my wife have to fast? And he says, well, have you asked the doctor first? And I said, no. He says, well, call the doctor. Tell me what he says. And I get back, get my wife says, get back to me. So I called the doctor. Um, by the way, I, I did this because my wife asked me to take care of it. it. It's perfectly fine for her to do it herself. I don't want anyone to like, misinterpret the story. Um, so I called the doctor. And the doctor says, oh, no, fasting is great. For this particular condition, like, you know, like a 25-hour fast is really good. It's very healthy. It's fine. Like, okay. <laughs> on the contrary, add a few of them every few months, you'll be, you'll be better. It's like you just have to know the medical. Like not everything is... Okay. Um, now, what about the reverse? What if the doctor says that you have a particular um, blood condition that means if you fast, your life will be in danger? And you're like, I feel perfectly fine. Are you allowed to fast? No. no. Because there's no real way for you to know that kind of thing, whereas the doctor's knowledge of anatomy and the kinds of tests has access to that kind of knowledge, right? So you have these two different kinds of knowledge? Okay, so how do we know, so what was the question? How do we know if we're getting it right or getting it wrong? Well, if you're doing something and it's not working, then clearly. What if you need to just work a little harder? One second, then one second. We have to know what, what does it mean you're not, it's not working, right? For instance, um, and by the way, knowing that, know, knowing that you're doing it wrong doesn't tell me what the wrong thing is. So I, for instance, one time had a massive headache here. Massive headache. And I popped a blood vessel in my eye and my eye was filling with blood. It was very disgusting. It happened. And um, I, it, was, it was a long day of teaching from 7.30 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night. So I get back to where I live. It's already like close to 10. And then there's a walk-in doctor's office. I went to the doctor. And he examines me, starts asking me questions about you know, my neurology, make sure, and everything is fine. And um, he asks me a few more questions. He says, well, yep, you're sleep deprived. That's what it is. The headaches and the blood, shot, the, uh, the blood vessel popping is because you're sleep deprived. And what you need to do is just go home and go to sleep and make sure you go to bed early the next few nights. So just because something is wrong doesn't always immediately tell you the solution, right? You know, it could be a serious issue. It could be a minor issue. Right? Maybe something isn't working because you're doing it slightly off. But now what do we mean so not working? you're saying what the doctor knows is more powerful? In that case, like, I could tell something is wrong because I could feel the headache, but I didn't necessarily know what the solution was. That's a separate issue. But we're just asking how do you know if it's wrong? Did it go away after? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll sleep yeah, yeah, there. <laughs> um, so to answer your question, well, what is the Torah supposed to be doing? Connecting you to Hashem, but just you individually or your community? Just your community in the present or a community in future generations? Right, right. All of that, right? So if the way you're approaching the Torah leads to assimilation, leads to leaving Judaism for another religion, then what does that tell you about the way, something about the way you're doing Judaism? Right. Now, right? What if you don't see that that's happening, but someone who has more knowledge of how the Torah works can see that the symptoms that lead to that are already there? Then that would mean that you're doing something, right? She so said, what do you mean? You say, no, no, no. I can see there's, there's you know, I, I, I understand how Torah works and I understand how reality works and 
you, there are certain symptoms here which are indication, there are certain signs, markers like in a blood test, which indicate that this keeps going, it's going to lead to... Some kind of solution. Which people would I what? Put into that category of people that know it well enough to know that there's something wrong. Isn't it like What's assimilation? What's assimilation? Uh, when people become part of the guy. Um, so the thing is like this. Let me ask you a question. Go back to the thing about the medicine. Which people are qualified to make a medical diagnostic? People who studied it. So who's qualified? Everybody that studied Well, now let me ask you a question. If I take a high school biology class, do you want me diagnosing your liver disease? <laughs> Why not? I studied biology. Because they're studying their study, right? It's the same thing. So a rabbi. No, but it's not a rabbi. What you just did is you, you, just did is you, you, you put a label on it, right? If I went to medical school. Let's I say, listen, I know, but I wanted to use it's not about a label. Let's say I go to medical school and I barely pass. And my medical school happens to be, what, what's a country I can make fun of and no one be offended? Um, um, Armenia is officially an ally of Israel, right? Or something Sorry. like that. Let's go with Armenia. I go to Armenian Community College and get a medical degree. Are you going to let me operate on you? Um, is your name doctor? If you know that. I'm, I have a doc. I, I, have a, I don't know anything about Armenia. Okay. Pret- if I felt like my, my wife's uncle um, was a doctor in the Soviet Union. They emigrated to the United States. And the United States government was like, it's very nice that you were a doctor in the Soviet Union, but um, not only do you not have a medical license, as far as we're concerned, you don't have a medical degree. We're just not even recognizing that as a medical degree. So what did he have to do? He had to go to medical school again from the beginning, which he did. Okay. Um, I had a student in my men's program a few years ago who was a doctor in a figure South American country it is the same issue he was, wanted to practice in the United States and they said we don't whatever the country is the education system is so bad we don't have to recognize the medical degree so you have to how go to medical reflect? school again what? how does that reflect? because is it the title doctor? doesn't it's the title doctor that's important or what they actu- or their actual knowledge and experience and expertise that matters? because we're not skilled enough to know what they need to know in order to know enough, we need that title. Ah, uh, but then who gives them the title in a way that we can rely on upon it? Like, I go to past high school, I still have high school people. But who gives them the title? This, this is where we're going to get to the answer to the question. That's who why gives you, the, you who gives the title? Another doctor. Another doctor. In other words, there's what's called a community of professionals. The doctors say, wait a minute, that guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, does it mean all the doctors agree about everything? No. But when you see that all the doctors look at one guy and like, okay, he is a sham. <laughs> then we're like, I don't care that he has a degree on his wall. Right? So what we're relying is not the title. We're relying on the fact that other people who are knowledgeable, and that's basically what it is. So yeah, if, if you got one person who says, this is a problem, this is a distortion, like, okay, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I don't have that level of knowledge, right? But if the community of, 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 of learned, scholarly, pious people are saying that, that might be an indication that there's something off there, right? It's the same thing. So we need backup. So now we're looking for backup of Torah? No. It's the, and it's, in other words, if, if you really want to if you really want to how do we know if something's corruption or not, if you if you can sense in your own self, in your own community, this is leading towards losing that sense of a covenant, that sense of the chosenness, that sense of continuing to practice the mitzvahs, you clearly something is off. 
That doesn't mean you know what to fix, but clearly something is off. And if people who are extremely knowledgeable in Torah, extremely well-versed in Torah, and have a lot of experience in practice, are saying not as in one individual here, one individual there, but as a community about something, well, then that's also an indication. And that's basically how we've done it for the past 3,000 years, frankly. We haven't waited, in fact, what's really important is according to Jewish law, a prophet is not allowed to weigh in on this matter. If a prophet comes and says, oh, this is not Torah, like, excuse me, prophecy is not Torah. You want to be a prophet, that's fine, but keep it away from the Torah. Don't, you're not allowed to use prophecy to tell us how to live according to the Torah. It's a sign of a false prophet, um, by the way. The thing is, is that my question with that, so you're saying that if that, the group of rabbis, let's say, also see a, see a problem, meaning if the doctor also sees a problem, um, but besides for the doctor having a degree, he's also meeting the patient. That would mean that the rabbis also need to be... Depends on the issue. It depends on the so, so yes and no. It depends on the issue, right? If let's say I'm a doctor, I'm not even a doctor. Let's say a doctor. It's like someone tells me, there's this. We have this patient, and he fell out of a ten-story window, and his neck is cracked, and um, there is a giant piece of metal going through his chest. Is his life in danger? Like I don't need to examine the patient. Those facts mean his life is in serious danger, right? Okay. On the other hand, some issues are clearly subtle where you need to examine the patient, right? The specialists have this all the time. We're like, it's enough to send me the chart and like, no, no, I need to examine the patient, right? And you see this. Like, for instance, there were disputes. Um, you find that sometimes there are disputes about, about particular things happening in communities. Um, like, there was this whole thing in Germany about, about something to do with, with how the German-Jewish community was. And they wanted some of the great rabbis in Eastern Europe to resolve the dispute, um, I think they wanted to some sofa to resolve the dispute. And he's like, this is clearly an issue that, it's a very serious issue, but it depends on understanding the local nature of German Jewry. And I'm not, don't know that information. There's no way I can have an opinion about that because I'm not there. Now, on the other hand, you know, some things you don't need to know about the local circumstances. It's fairly obvious to someone who's well The same way the doctor will say, I need to see the patient. Right. The rabbi or whatever would say, I need to assess. And so that's the thing, is that, is that, is that if Judaism is, is, if the Torah is this bond between the Shem and the Jewish people that's eternal, well, that means it's this living and ongoing thing, but it doesn't mean it's up for grabs, you can do whatever you want with it, just like, you know, living organs of a person, okay? And again, that analogy of birth would be the coming of the Messianic era. And one last point of the thing that I'm just going to say is, how do you create a child? There's a unity between a husband and a wife, Yes. Yeah. The Jewish people are, are not wife. God. The wife and Hashem is, and the Torah is the unity between them. And that brings about some wonderful reality, ultimately the Messianic era. And if we have that kind of imagery of what we mean by Torah, it helps us navigate all the different complexities and depths of what Torah is. So this, again, is just one way of shedding light on what Torah is. And I hope you see how it's very different than what we spoke about yesterday about, about prophecy. Prophecy has its place. Prophecy is important. Um, but it's not Torah. Torah is far, far more significant than prophecy. So you said that the reason why people find Torah is because they believe in prophecy? That may be what makes a person seek it out. But once you know what Torah is, it's like sometimes people become friends for superficial reasons. But once they're friends, they develop a deeper bond. You might seek out Torah because you want to know the truth of God as it applies to your life, and you start to realize that maybe there's actually something much more profound, the truth of all eternity.